Our passage this morning is from Matthew chapter 26, and on page 5 is an outline. We've been going through Matthew for the past two year and a half, and according to my calculations, we'll be done by um, sometime in September, I think. Uh, maybe even towards the end of August, so we're getting down to the home stretch. And today we're coming to um, a major transition. We are finished hearing the speeches of Jesus. And now we come to the final narrative called the Passion Narrative. And over the past four weeks, we had been doing a series on how to prepare for the second coming of Christ. And I have it summarized um, on the top of page five, our four-week series, which was called How to Prepare for the Second Coming of Christ, Know How to Read the Signs. There were five general ones and two specific ones. Watch for the two specific ones because they mean that Jesus is at the door, A, standing for the coming of the abominable showman, a godless creature who is evil and who is uh, incredibly powerful, but of course not as powerful as God. And then the T comes tribulation. And then for the third week, we looked at an acronym called BTWAP. Um, and as we looked at BTWAP, we discovered that it meant buy time with advanced preparation, the story of the 10 virgins, and bide time with active production, the story of the 10 talents, or the, uh, the men with the different talents. And then last week we learned that caring for Christ was the same as caring for the least of these of Jesus's brethren. And just before I move to the position, to the passage for today, I just want to have a lingering question in our minds because that's what we were left to think of last week. It seemed as though Jesus was teaching that he was comparable to the least of these his brethren because he said, whatever you do to the least of these my brethren, you do it to me. So somebody with um, a, a, a poor theological mind and a heretical inclination might sort of think, so Jesus is worth about as much as one of the least of these my brethren. Today's passage, my friend, is going to correct that and is going to tell us much about Jesus and much about ourselves. But that's getting ahead of the point. I've titled today's sermon, What Can We Learn from the Passion Narrative and the Story of a Rose Between Two Thorns? The rose being the woman who anointed Jesus at Bethany, and the two thorns being Caiaphas, who comes before, and Judas, who comes afterwards. And I have my bottom line there. There are things that we can learn about Jesus, and there are things that we can learn about us. First of all, he ordains to save. He ordains to save. Verse 1. And so it was that when, Jesus, that when Jesus finished all of these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover comes, and then the Son of Man will be given over to be crucified. Jesus chose Passover as the season for his death. Because the Passover, of course, was the time when the Israelites celebrated their escape from bondage. And it happened when the blood of a lamb was placed on the doorposts of their houses and the angel of death passed over the doorposts. And when he saw the blood on the doorposts, no one who stood within that, door, within that household was killed. 
And Jesus has in mind that he's going to do the same thing for us. Jesus ordains to save us is the first lesson that comes from the passion narrative. But wait a minute. What is the passion narrative? I could never figure out why they called it the passion narrative, because when I think of passion, I think of the modern day use of the term passion. You know, when you have passionate fruit and when you're passionately in love and passion this and passion that. But of course, the word passion is an old fashioned word for suffering. It means suffering. And so the passion narrative is the story of the suffering and death of Jesus. And in Matthew, it goes from chapter 26, verse 1, to chapter 28, verse 15, right up to the Great Commission. And it's the story of the suffering and the death of Jesus. And so it ought better to be called, perhaps, the, passion, the, uh, the suffering narrative. But the word passion stays because it's timely. And also because the word passion sounds a little bit like the Greek and Hebrew words for Passover. The word for it in Greek is Pascha, and the word for it in Hebrew is Pesach. So you have that P and that S sound in there. So it also reminds us that this was a time of Passover, and it was the time that Jesus ordained that he would die for our sins. And also I think the idea of passion fits because Christians are passionate about the death of Jesus. We have crosses everywhere. There's one on the table here. There's one around the neck of many of you because we know that the death of Jesus was absolutely crucial, not just to our destiny, but to that of all of humankind. Because my friends, when Jesus died on that cross, he was like that Passover lamb and his blood covered us and saved us from destruction. So now when God looks at us and he sees the blood of Jesus applied to us by faith, we are rescued. We are saved. We are free. So that's how the passion narrative begins. It begins in verses 1 and 2 with Jesus saying to his disciples, and he could have hit a little timer. You know, when you go to the, when you go to the hotel desk or when you go to a place where there's a, a little bell that you ring and you want to sort of announce that, hey, it's time, come to the desk, I'm here, ding. Jesus hits the bell and he says, ding. Passover in two days, guys. The Son of Man will be given over to be crucified. Then and only then comes the story of the chief priests and of the elders. And actually, I have uh, taken a little bit of liberty here and not even included it in the introduction to the Passion narrative, even though it belongs there. And the point is this. When you read verses 3 to 5, it sounds like Caiaphas and the elders of the church are conspiring against Jesus and have a plan to take him down. But Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, has Jesus announce the fact that he is going to die before we read the story of Caiaphas and the elders plotting his death. We read, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled at the villa of the high priest who is called Caiaphas. And they conspired together that they would arrest Jesus on the sly and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest there be a commotion among the people. What Matthew and the Spirit here are saying is that Jesus' accident was no death. Yes, there were people who were conspiring against Jesus. 
Just like the evil people do in Psalm 2 when they're conspiring against God and his Messiah. The language of verse 4 is very much like that. They conspired together against him. And they did it on the sly. They knew that they had to be devious because otherwise there was nothing that they could hold against him. We had to do it quietly. We had to do it um, on the sly. We had to do it subtly. We had to do it deceitfully. Because there was a commotion that would have arisen among the people because they loved Jesus. So Jesus is saying here, the Spirit is saying here, Caiaphas and his friends may think they're in charge, but it's God who's in charge. God is sovereign. And we get a little hint of that even in verse 5. Because what they, the best idea that they could come up with was to say, not during the Passover lest there be a commotion among the people. It won't be very long before we read that it happens during the Passover anyway, in spite of the fact that that was their worst scenario. Why? Because of who's in charge. Jesus ordained that he would be killed during the Passover as a reminder of the fact that he's setting us free and that his blood, when applied to our lives, is the source of salvation. It's the source of deliverance for each one of us. So there's a lesson that comes here, not only that Jesus ordains to save us, but secondly, that he is in full control. Whether the actions of people be bad, as in the case of Caiaphas, as, and as in the case of Judas, or even good, as with the woman who anointed him, about whom we shall soon read. My friends, I want to stop at this point, however, and make an observation about us. And it's under your heading, about us. We can learn much from the Passion narrative, as we will over the next several weeks, about God and about ourselves. There are cues to be taken from the behavior of individuals that are cues to be taken from the example of Jesus. But if you read the passion narrative as a whole, you realize that to follow the example of individuals for good behavior, you know, don't be like Judas, do be like the woman who anointed Jesus' head with oil, be more like Jesus in this regard, is to miss the point entirely. Because Jesus has ordained to save you, and God is in control. And all through the passion narrative, we hear people and we see people trying to wiggle their way and work their way through different circumstances, some for ill and some for good, but it doesn't matter in the end because Jesus has ordained to save you. He is in control. Here's my point. I think a lot of us spend a lot of our times fiddling around Trying to do this and that to make things right. Even us Christians. You know, if I were just a little bit more sanctimonious in this regard, if I were just a little bit more into discipleship in that regard, if I could just kind of harness my pride and, and do this and do that, it would all be for good. But my friends, you need to apply the atoning work of Jesus to your life. And you need to invite the Holy Spirit to come into your life before any of it makes any sense. Otherwise, it's all just striving after nothing. Compare the disciples' behavior before Pentecost and before Christ's death with that of the disciples afterwards. 
You've got Judas, who's a terrible example. I mean, you know, he goes and he sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But you've got Simon Peter, who's a superstar, right? He said, Lord, I'm going to die for you. I won't ever betray you. Jesus said, uh, you got about 12 hours. You'll deny, me. You'll, you'll deny me three times. All of our best efforts are no good at all unless we have applied the death of Jesus to our lives and have had the Holy Spirit come into our lives. When I was a teenager, we went to uh, a really exotic camp on the coast of British Columbia that was owned by Young Life of USA, and it was called Malibu. And before the resort was given to Young Life as a gift by a Christian donor, it was a vacation spot for movie stars. It was right on the BC coast, which is gorgeous. And there was a little inlet uh, next to the ocean. So you've got the, uh, the ocean over here, and then there was a little passageway that led into an inlet. And Malibu was inside this inlet. Well, during recreation time at a camp that we were at, where my dad was the camp doctor, people went out in boats. And they went paddling around the inlet, and it was all fine. But we noticed that one family got too close to the little kind of uh, narrow part between the inlet and the ocean, and the tide was going out. And there was a set of rapids in this little inlet. And they started to paddle as fiercely as they could away from that passageway back into the inlet and were not getting very far at all. In fact, they were losing the battle. Some well-meaning person on the shore asked me to come along and a few other people to try and throw a rope to rescue these people. And so we got in a boat, and it was a motorboat, and we went up to the people who were fast losing ground, and I threw them a rope, as I was instructed to do, and they were hanging onto this rope. We were trying to push back into the inlet, and they were slowly going back into that narrow set of rapids that led out to the ocean. The bow was tipping, and it was getting very dangerous, and we were scared. Everybody on the beach was just watching in horror. And then, unbeknownst to us, at least we didn't notice it at the time, there was another member of the camp who had uh, a yacht. He had come there by a yacht. He got into his yacht, and he went out into the inlet, and he spoke on his megaphone. And he said, there's no point in resisting. Let go of the rope. And those of you who are in the rowboat, put your oars inside the boat and lie on the bottom of the boat and let it take you through the passageway. And so he sounded authoritative, so they did. They folded their oars into the boat and they lay on the bottom of the boat. And sure enough, once we gave in, that boat just went right through the rapids. It dodged the rocks because the water went around it. And then we got over to the ocean side. We just paddled right on into the resort and everything was fine. You know, as I thought about that story, I thought of the way in which non-Christians, as well as many of us Christians, kind of think it's up to us to make it right. You know, if we just get our stuff together a little bit more, if we just strive a little bit more like a good disciple, or if like Caiaphas, we're protecting our power and our influence, and we're afraid that this guy is going to just take it away from us. My friends, the more you strive for your own control, the more you lose it. The more you strive to free yourself, the more you become a prisoner of your circumstances. And in a way, what I think the Spirit of God is saying in this passage today is, and put your name here as I put mine, Glenn, fold up the oars and lie in the bottom of the boat 
and let that wooden thing take you through the passageway. Then, on the other side, there's kind of this sense of peace. You realize, I submitted. <laughs> I now have all kinds of freedom that I didn't know I had before. I've just given up the struggle. It's one of the great Christian ironies that surrendering to the will of Jesus Christ is the ticket to freedom. Very counterintuitive. But of course, the gospel and Jesus and the kingdom are all about counterintuitive things. My friends, we have much to learn from the passion narrative as we will, but if there's one thing we need to learn is to surrender to the fact that Jesus died for you. He has ordained it. He's the one who's done everything. And do as you will to help or to hinder. He did it anyway. And the invitation is open. And Jesus, even tonight, is saying to you, fold up the oars, lie in the bottom of the boat, and do absolutely nothing. That's the safest way for you to make it to the other side safely. So that's a little uh, point about the whole passion narrative. And if there's one thing you take away from the sermon, I trust it will be that. There is freedom in surrender. Judas wanted to earn a little more money, didn't want to buy into Jesus' program. Caiaphas and his temple friends were offended that Jesus had sort of insulted the temple. They were threatened by him. Their ticket to freedom was the ticket to slavery. But to someone who submits to the will of God, like we see the woman in Bethany doing in the next passage that we're going to look at, is the ticket to freedom. So we move from the passion narrative to the story of a rose between two thorns. We've already looked at one of the thorns, and that's the story of Caiaphas and the elders who were plotting against Jesus. Some of what they did worked. You know, they, they, did, they did conspire on the sly, and they did capture him, and they killed him. <laughs> but that was Jesus' plan all the way along. They wanted to do it not during Passover, God overrode that. It happened during Passover because of who's in charge. God is in charge. God is sovereign. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is sovereign. So we come to the first of the thorns on the other side of the rose. Let's look at the second one, and then we'll turn to the rose itself, because there is part of the gospel. Our thorn on the other side of the rose, who, if you haven't guessed as yet, is the woman who anointed Jesus with oil, is in verse 14. Here we're introduced to Judas, who's going to play a big role in the rest of the Passion narrative. Then one of the twelve, one called Judas Iscariot, came to the chief priests and said, Hmm, what are you willing to give me if even I will deliver him to you? Well, they had a little money on the side, 30 pieces of silver, 30 silver coins, and they gave it to him. And immediately we recognize already two things. And again... <laughs> Jesus is in control. Jesus has ordained that this happened. Because in this whole transaction, what they were doing was they were fulfilling a prophecy in Zechariah about Zechariah himself, who was an unappreciative, who was an unappreciated shepherd. And Zechariah bemoans the fact that the people aren't listening to him, they don't really care about him. And then the 30 pieces of silver are shelled out to him as kind of a token. And so this becomes a prophecy of Jesus. And even in Matthew, even in Judas's own words, and here I'm moving to a different point, so just stay with me in verse 15. What are you willing to give me if I will deliver him to you? 
The word deliver is the most important verb in the entire passion narrative. And it talks about Jesus delivering himself or being delivered by God over to death. So even in the midst of the most evil, contrary plot you could possibly imagine, Jesus' program is being moved forward. One of my favorite verses is probably yours, and it's, For God works all things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Now let's look at the rose in the middle, verses 6 to 13. Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment approached him and poured it on his head as he reclined at the meal table. Well, I thought a little bit about that illustration I used with the children because I thought it might be helpful for us to empathize with the disciples who were indignant. You're running a and b and uh, you have one of your um, family members go out and buy the, uh, the bathroom supplies for a special guest, and you find out that they spent a whole year's salary on the body lotion and the shampoo. Went on the person's head. They had a wonderful bath. It was a very nice thing to do. And down the drain it goes. And you think, what were you thinking? That cost us a whole year. Well, the disciples, who have been trained by Jesus just in the preceding paragraph, that whatever they do for the least of these, the needy, the brethren, they do it to Jesus. Think, oh my gosh, you just blew a giant wad that could have been spent on hundreds of poor people. Well, here Jesus comes back, and here the Spirit comes back and says, wait a minute, the lesson that we learned last week about the importance of giving to the needy, the least of these, my brethren, is like giving it to Jesus, doesn't mean that Jesus is the same as the needy. They're in a whole different category. Jesus is saying, the poor you have always with me. But guess what? I'm about to die for you. I'm the incarnate son of the eternal God, and I'm worth it. So on this one occasion, Jesus rescued the woman and vindicated her. So, number one, Jesus ordains to save. Number two, he's in full control whether the actions of people be bad or good. And number three, he is worth more than the poor, not only for dying for us, but because of how he cares for us. If you look at the story carefully, there's no indication that this woman came with the idea of preparing Jesus for his burial. In fact, at least two other times in the Gospels, we have women who come with a very expensive um, um, flask of ointment, and they either pour it on the head of Jesus, probably indicating his royal status, or they pour it on the feet of Jesus. And they do this because they just love him so much. What would it take for Jesus to have done something like that to the woman, for her to spend a whole year's ointment just to pour it on the guy's head or just to pour it on the guy's feet. Well, the disciples are indignant, and I think here Jesus comes to the rescue, and in so doing, he illustrates what kind of a person he was. Picture it. You're in a room full of men, ladies. Um, you are um, not exactly the most reputable woman in the world. We're told in one of the other Gospels, maybe it was the same story or a different one, that uh, you were a sinner. You come into the room and you just, you just are so grateful to Jesus for what he's done. 
that you had this very beautiful alabaster jar and you break it on his head and you just kind of, you lay your heart on the table and say, Jesus, I love you. Well, what is she doing? I cost a fortune. Didn't she have the sense to give it to the poor? And we're told in other gospels that they rebuked the woman. The disciples had got their theology right, sort of. At least the ethical side of their theology right, sort of. But they need to think a little bit more about who Jesus is and what he's about to do. And here Jesus, I think, covers for the woman. And he says, no, don't bother her. You're being too hard on her. Because, guess what, guys? She prepared my body for burial. Yes, that's what she did. Thank you, ma'am. Whatever you do from this point on, whenever I tell the story of the gospel, it will be remembered. This was your contribution to my burial. So he, he covered for her. He restored her dignity. It reminded me a little bit of Les Miserables, the uh, French historical novel from the 19th century, where there is a robber, and the robber uh, gets out of jail. He's been put in jail because he stole money in order to feed his starving sister and her children. He spent five years in jail for that and about 14 years elsewhere, or otherwise, for trying to escape. He goes to a town, and nobody wants him because he has a yellow um, card that says he was a prisoner. He's sleeping outside, poor as a church mouse. He comes to the home of a bishop. Bishop Muriel takes him in. Bishop Muriel feeds him. And then in the middle of the night, the robber, he goes and he steals the silver that belonged to the bishop. And he takes off. He's immediately arrested. The police come and they say, Bishop, we found your silver. And look, we caught the guy red-handed. And guess what? The guy said you gave it to me. The guy said you gave it to him. The bishop says, well, I did. Oh, and you forgot two more silver candlesticks. You must have left in such a hurry. Here are the two other candlesticks. And he gives it to the guy. Well, you can imagine the reaction of the person, right? Like here is this guy. He's thinking, you're caught red-handed. I'm about to be uh, probably executed for my robbery. And the bishop covers for him. And then the bishop says, my friend, I'm doing this so that you can make an honest person of yourself. I'm doing this for the sake of your soul. Make it count. Well, of course, the story is different in that the woman was not a robber. The woman did it for the generous spirit. But she was embarrassed. She was ridiculed. Her greatest contribution was turned into something that was a mockery, and Jesus couldn't bear it. He said, leave her alone. What she's done is a good deed for me. Because she's anointed my body for burial. There you go. That's great. Thank you. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what this woman has done will also be told in remembrance of her. Two people put a price on Jesus' head. Judas, I got 30 pieces of silver, a couple months' wages. This woman, Jesus meant everything to her. He poured on his head a whole year's worth of perfume, and Jesus said, she's got it right. She knows what I'm worth. You know, we come to church week by week, and we hear stories of the human Jesus, and he was totally human. It's hard to believe that this person who was 100% human was also 100% God. 
and I think that we run the risk, too, of devaluing Jesus because he's a human. He relates to us so, so easily. He's compassionate. He's like one of us and more. We're told that if we just treat a poor person like him, we've treated him the same. My friends, this is the eternal son of God, the creator of the universe, the one who formed it, the one who's the embodiment of divine wisdom from ages past, who he is here in human form dying for you and for me to set us free from our sins, to create what is a global Passover. So we have your story of a rose between two thorns. Circumstances prevailed in the case of Caiaphas. Circumstances prevailed in the case of this wild rose, the woman. Circumstances prevailed in the case of Judas. A rose, two thorns. What Jesus did for us was a rosy global Passover of eternal significance. And he did it by weaving thorns into his crown to die for you and me. What price will you put on Jesus' head? And have you folded up the oars and lain in the bottom of the boat and let him be the Lord of your life? Because after that, discipleship becomes an exercise of empowerment and grace and joy rather than one of striving at the oars and losing the game. Amen.